You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Scott Simon, a professor in the School of Sociological and Anthropological Studies and co-holder of the Research Chair in Taiwan Studies at the University of Ottawa. I've invited him onto the podcast today to talk about an article that he recently wrote titled, We Must Be on Guard as China Seeks Strategic Advantage. It was written for the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, a Canadian public policy think tank. The piece cautioned that China might use the COVID-19 outbreak to advance its strategic interests. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Yeah, thank you very much, Felicia. I'm very happy here to help you with this today. Right. Yeah. And uh, you're actually in Taiwan at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. I'm in Tainan. I've been here since uh, March 17th. Uh, what's the atmosphere there these days? Well, I think that from what I'm seeing on the media, that there's a pretty big difference between Taipei and Tainan. Uh-huh. So from what I see in Taipei, where there's a metro, uh, there's uh, a lot of concern about wearing face masks in public. And they've made it a law that you have to wear a face mask on public transportation. Oh. But I'm down here in Tainan, which is a much smaller city. Um, and there's no metro. And so people move around on scooters a lot and by foot. And I'm not getting around too much, but when I go to the park, I see a lot of people without masks. And when I go to the traditional markets, I see a lot of people without masks. So I think that there's a little bit more of a sense here that Taiwan is safe. And people don't really feel the same, the same sense that they have in Taipei. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and today I asked you onto the podcast to talk about a piece you wrote recently for the McDonald Laurier Institute about that's cautioning China might use the COVID-19 outbreak to advance its strategic interests. Could you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write this piece? Well, you know, I've, I've lived in Taiwan for a long time. I always come to Taiwan and from January to March, I was uh, living in Guam, which is an unincorporated territory of the U.S., and also very important for uh, strategic military purposes. And when COVID hit, I had to make a very difficult decision to close down my research and leave Guam. So I took my flight, which the return flight going back to Canada was going from Guam to Taipei on China Airlines and then onwards to Tokyo. And so I took that first stretch on China Airlines to Taipei and was reading the uh, newspaper on the airplane, Ziyo Shibao. Mm -hmm. And just the day before, there had been an incident at night on March 16th when China flew one of their jets, uh, one of their military jets, very close to Taiwanese airspace right. at night. And it's the first time that that's happened at night. Mm -hmm. And generally, I, I keep track of these things in the media. You know, because because most of the places where I'm looking in the media, like the Tzio Shibao, it only talks about what happens in Taiwan. But then when I look at the Sankei Shimbun in, in Japan, it only talks about what happens in Japan territory. Right. And I thought that it would be a service to put together what's been happening since the COVID outbreak mm -hmm. of Chinese aggressive behavior towards going outwards from China into the Pacific. So starting with the Taiwan's outer islands, and then Taiwan's main island, and then Japan, and then 
They've even gone as far as Guam. And I thought it would be a service to kind of put that together into one article. I haven't seen anybody else do that. So just right. make, make sure that the information is there. That way, too, as well as when I go back to Canada, if I want to write something longer and more detailed, then at least I've got these sources to go back to. Right. And what evidence or other evidence has there been that uh, China might use COVID-19 to advance strategic interests? Well, I think what's happening is, you know, there's been a lot of stuff about using COVID-19 with information warfare mm-hmm. and then so forth. But what I'm really focusing on is the fact that in spite of having a global pandemic, that Chinese military is still operating uh, apparently as normal. And because they are, then we also have to be operating normally. Of course, we don't really know what's going on in China, let alone in the PLA. Right. I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, what about China's attitude? What is their attitude since the reopening of Wuhan? Because I heard that they were trying to get rid of a lot of the foreign media that was there after Wuhan Mm -hmm. reopened. Yeah, we don't really know what's going on. Because if I were to take a look right now, which I'll do while we're speaking, at the uh, coronavirus tracker at John Hopkins, when I look at that, and it's opening up right now, I see that the total of confirmed has gone up a lot in the last hour. But China, it says 82,665 confirmed cases. And that really hasn't changed in the last few days. And they're trying to tell us that there's no more spread of the, of the virus in China and that it's mm-hmm. under control. Mm-hmm. And I find that hard to believe. I know that universities in China are holding classes online. I know there's a lot of control of people's movement there because people in China are telling me that in their emails. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find it really hard to believe that it's, it's under control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yesterday on the news, there was a fisherman came to Taiwan and the people working on these fishing boats were from Fujian province and they were begging to stay in Taiwan because they say that the virus is very widespread in China and they're afraid for their lives. So I I think that we really don't know what's going on in China. We don't believe what the Chinese are telling us. There's a lack Mm -hmm. of transparency. And I think that that causes a lot of concern. Yeah. And there's been some evidence that China is in a way trying to rewrite the history of COVID-19. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's all been all over the place, but they're, they're trying to make it as if the outbreak happened in China first, but it might have come from somewhere else. Their foreign affairs have even on Twitter accused the United States of intentionally planning right. it. And, and then they're trying to show themselves to the world as being the ones who are very efficient and are capable of controlling it. I think that a lot of people in the world are just accepting all of that. Also, what about the relationship between Taiwan and China and the WHO status, too? Yeah, there's been an awful lot about that as well, that, you know, Taiwan has done so well. Taiwan issued, you know, a warning on December 31st Mm -hmm. uh, that this does spread from human to human. I went from Taiwan to Guam on January 21st, Mm -hmm. and it had been in the news, but the WHO was saying that there's little evidence of human to human transmission. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that aviation should go on as normal. (laughs) And so I went ahead with my trip, Mm. um, not really knowing Uh what was going on. And then the day after I get to Guam, Taiwan put in together measures against people coming in from Wuhan. 
which made me think, well, this is really serious. Yes. And, but the rest of the world wasn't waking up to that. The U.S. is one of the first, but I, I kind of felt comfort in Guam because because it's such a military, militarily sensitive place, there were no direct flights from China to Guam in any way. And they don't have the kind of Chinese tourism to Guam. Uh, they've got Japanese and South Korean tourism, but they really don't have the kind of mass tourism from China that other places have. They might have individuals, Chinese people who live in Japan and want to take a vacation, but not the mass tourism. And for listeners who don't know, I also want to note that Taiwan is not a part of the WHO. So we can see from Scott's comments, the different reaction and uh, what statements that the WHO is making and then Taiwan's reaction to uh, the COVID-19. I think that it shows something important. I think it shows that Taiwan doesn't really need the WHO. Taiwan is without it. But I think it's the WHO that needs Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And the world needs Taiwan, but China has really blocked Taiwan from participating in that. Um, and so besides Taiwan, we've talked about Taiwan, Japan, and the U.S. all being affected by China's military actions. Who else do you think should be on alert? Like, perhaps the whole world should be on some sort of alert. It's actually a Japan-led initiative, but there's something called the Free and Open Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm which uh, Japan has spearheaded. Uh, The United States is clearly on board. But what they want to do is for the entire area, going from the eastern part of Africa through the Indian Ocean and then through, you know, those straits around Malaysia and Indonesia and then up into East Asia and across to North America, they want to have to guarantee a free and open Indo-Pacific for maritime traffic and they want it to be based on alliance, really, of, of democracies. Mm-hmm. And so there are other countries getting involved. It kind of blends together with other initiatives that go on. So it's just kind of a way of maintaining freedom of navigation. And, you know, Australia's in on that. Canada's been in on that. Canada mm-hmm. has uh, been working very hard uh, with the Japanese military. Actually, every year they've got some exercises called KDEX. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are positive things going on. Australia and New Zealand, there are other powers as well. I think it's important to get some of the smaller overlooked areas would be those other islands of the Pacific. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that you're in Guam because we've seen some recent cases of coronavirus in the U.S. Navy and most recently the Theodore Roosevelt that's now mm-hmm. in Guam. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? Do you think that's going to weaken the U.S.'s ability to protect its territories or allies and perhaps even Taiwan? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the military is strong and Taiwan's military is strong, which is probably the most important thing there. And I, I think there are a number of lessons to draw from that. And one of them, I think, is that these other countries like Taiwan and Japan should realize that things can happen. Things mm-hmm. can break down. So the first thing they have to be is they've got to be prepared themselves. And they are. Um, I think Taiwan is ready to repel a, a Chinese attack if anything were to happen until the U.S. can get there. Even in this case of an aircraft carrier being out of commission for a while. Japan, I think that they are 
pretty much there, but I, I think it would be helpful if they could change their constitution and normalize their military. So basically what's happened, you know, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, they've had those COVID cases there. And another interesting thing that it points out is the transparency of our system compared to the Chinese right, system. Right, right. And so actually this whole thing was throughout the media, it was open to everybody that the commander of the ship wanted to offload people and have them treated. And at the same time, they can't offload everybody because it is a very sensitive, it's almost like a floating city, but it's got mm -hmm. all of those weapons on it. Mm -hmm. It's got like a nuclear reactor on mm -hmm. it. And so obviously they can't just abandon the whole ship. They have to keep it running and battle ready. Mm -hmm. And so that was all there and open for us all to see. Whereas the Chinese system is so closed that we don't really know what's going on. How do we know that the PLA is not having the same kind of problems? Yeah, that's right? a good point. Good and we don't know that. So as an anthropologist, I'm wondering, what do you think would be some of the long-term effects of this global pandemic? I think that in terms of the long-term effects, we're talking about the future there. So I hope you don't mind if I start a little bit with the past. No, no. Yeah, I think that, you know, my own project that I was working on in Guam and that I work on in Taiwan, it's called Austronesian Worlds, uh, Human-Animal Entanglements in the Pacific Anthropocene. And I think it's that last word which is really important, the word Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And there we're looking at the human impact on the planet. And for the first time, we can see in the geological record the impact of humans. We're looking at things like uh, radioactivity that's caused by nuclear um, testing and nuclear bombs mm -hmm. and so forth. We're looking at plastic sediments, pollution sediments. But really, humans have made a big impact on the planet, which we can see in many different ways. We call that the Anthropocene. And it kind of dates from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And I think that part of that, a really big part of that, is that the human population has really grown very rapidly. You know, it's hard to imagine that only 50 years ago, the population of the world was half what it is today. And at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was about one-eighth of what it is today. So it's really rapidly heading towards 8 billion people on this planet. And what that's done is it's uh, forced uh, people to spread out. But it's not just people spreading out on the planet. It's that we are reaching further and further into the world for the resources that we need. So cutting down forests to make room for more agriculture, uh, looking around the world for minerals and plants and things that we need. And as we do so, we're more and more exposed to viruses that are carried in animals. And so that's kind of how the Anthropocene has really laid the conditions for this pandemic. And then at the same time, because there are more people, we're more crowded in together. So the, the virus can spread more rapidly throughout really dense populations. And our means of transportation have really changed. Yeah. And so now we take it for granted that we can fly to anywhere in the world and be there, uh, you know, within at the maximum, like a 16 hour time frame mm -hmm. and at a very reasonable price. And so that's really accelerated the contacts and we're just carrying these germs around as if we're ready to go. And so that's kind of made it possible for this pandemic to happen. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of looking at how our human changes in behavior over the past 200 years, 
but even more importantly in the last 50 years, which we can call the Great Acceleration. And that's led to this, uh, what we call the Anthropocene, and that's created conditions for epidemics. Right. So that's kind of what an anthropological perspective on the coronavirus pandemic would look like. Mm -hmm. When we're looking into the future, I think that anthropology is really not that good at looking into the future. Well, one thing that's also interesting is that as much of the world is starting to look towards ending the lockdown, the question of what we should be taking into consideration besides Mm -hmm. the opinions of scientists, medical professionals, Mm -hmm. the state of economy and people's financial situations, that's Mm -hmm. what the focus seems to be on. But as an anthropologist, do you think there's something else that we should be taking into consideration before we move to ending lockdowns? Yeah, I I think that we need to start thinking about the kind of new world that we want to construct because it's giving us a possibility to rethink the world we live in. And I think that a number of things are becoming evident to to people. One thing, you know, we've kind of slowed down a bit and maybe people will be able to think about things other than the economy. And by that, I mean, you know, maybe like I was just talking about the Anthropocene, we've been kind of destroying much of the planet because of the idea that the economy must always grow. And maybe we can think about an economy not in the sense of constant growth. The 70s, we know there are limits on the planet, but maybe an economy that, that nourishes the life that we already have. So I think a part of that is maybe we can think in terms of creating new forms of solidarity so that our societies can take better care of the more vulnerable parts of our societies. And so we could also think about the relations between the humans and the non-humans and really kind of try to think of making more space for the wildlife. In the Western media, there's a real bias. They're all reporting on things like, like it's a, a Western thing. It's amazing. I saw on the BBC, there is this thing that came on, on Twitter today. And it said, which world leader do you think is handling the best? And it had four pictures. It was Trump and Merkel and Macron and uh, the woman is prime minister of New Zealand. I was just really kind of stunned by that, that the BBC, but they didn't even put like, they, put, they didn't put like Tsai Ing-wen, president of Taiwan. Uh-huh. And maybe South Korea deserves right. some mention. And so it just seems as if there's this Western bias, which is always present and doesn't seem to be going away. I think that's actually part of why the United States and Canada and Europe were taken so much by surprise is that you know, in January, when we were looking at what was happening at Wuhan, very carefully and with a lot of apprehension about what that meant for us in Taiwan and other areas around here. You know, I think that people in Washington and Ottawa and in European capitals were not really even thinking about it coming to them. They somehow thought that China was way on the other side of the world right. and, you know mm-hmm. some exotic people on the other side of the world it had nothing to do with them mm-hmm. and somehow they didn't notice that every single day there were thousands of people arriving from there on airplanes mm-hmm. i don't know how they couldn't figure that out until March. it doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all and I, I think that they were just so fixated on their own things and weren't really seeing the world you know, with the diversity that it is mm-hmm. and seeing how closely linked that we are to other parts of the world. They should have seen what was being shared on social media from China 
what was coming, and yet they didn't. The Americans were just totally obsessed with proceedings for uh, Donald Trump getting impeached, and the Canadians seemed to be more worried about the, the indigenous protests against mm -hmm. uh, oil pipelines, right. and just couldn't see what was coming, and it was so obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. I mean, there's a lot of disturbing things, like the whole discussion of what's more important, the state of the economy yeah. or um, human lives. And then it's also mm -hmm. interesting to note how, uh, since much of the world's been on lockdown, what that's meant for the world in terms of the pollution and, mm -hmm. and the noise pollution, all that, like, it's been a really huge impact um, that we've noticed that it's gone down because people are just not having the same level of activity. You really bring up some interesting questions of what kind of world we want to live in after this. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of concern in India that there would be mass starvation and that mm -hmm. there would be then social unrest, and it hasn't happened. And I think that what's happened is that, you know, there are so many people in India who are really poor Mm -hmm. and living from day to day. Mm -hmm. So if they can't work, they just don't have the money for food. But what has happened is that the Indian state, but I think also religious groups, have come out and they've been providing food to people who need it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows that we're capable as human beings to do that. And we're capable of having states that take care of vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that that kind of solidarity is something that continues after the lockdown ends. Right. Yeah. I think it's like a reset. We need to reprioritize like what our priorities have been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Great. Um, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we close here? I guess if we're going to wrap it all up, I would say that, you know, looking to the past, we can really see that what we call the Anthropocene or the rapid growth in human population since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is really put us at greater risk of diseases being transmitted from animals to human beings. And so that's brought up this pandemic. Oh, so I just looked up the definition of the term you mentioned earlier, Anthropocene, and wanted to share it. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is defined as the period of time during which human activities have had an environmental impact on the Earth, regarded as constituting a distinct geological age. This is really interesting because I've read several articles recently about how the decrease in human activity since much of the world has gone to lockdown has actually led to a decrease in noise and air pollution. You know, the whole world that we've been building up since 1800 is something that we really have to be reflecting on more carefully. And so I'm just kind of hoping that as we move forward, that we can have new solidarities that emerge from this and yeah. that we learn that we have to take care of more vulnerable humans, but also that we have to take better care of the world beyond the human and make sure that we have effective balance on this planet. Right, right. Very well put. If people want to know more about you or your work, um, do you have a website or would you like to share any social media handles? We'll certainly yeah. put a link to the article that I'm referring to on our yeah, website. Yeah, yeah, put the link to the article. And then mm -hmm. um, it's also been shared on the website of the Center for International Policy yes. Studies at the University of Ottawa. Okay. And there is an author website there, so you can put the author website from that okay. along with the podcast. Okay, great. 
Okay, well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk about these important issues. Okay, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Scott Simon, a professor in the School of Sociological and Anthropological Studies and co-holder of the Research Chair in Taiwan Studies at the University of Ottawa. I'd like to thank him for expanding on the piece he wrote, We Must Be On Guard As China Seeks Strategic Advantage, and for sharing his thoughts as an anthropologist on what needs to be considered as we start to address how and when to come out of COVID-19 lockdowns. We will share links to Scott's piece for the Macdonald Laurier Institute, his author page on the Center for International Policy Studies of the University of Ottawa website, and other related links on our website, www.talkingtaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.